are in our series entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. As Christians, we are strangers in this world. We are just passing through, as it were. And uh, we've been looking the past few weeks, and we're going to continue on uh, in the next several weeks, looking at First Peter and seeing how we are strangers in a strange land. Now today, in today's passage, I'm reminded of uh, when I was a kid, and I remember watching television, and do you remember when the screen would go blank at first, and then it would have the different color bars, and you'd hear, eh, 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 this is a test. You remember that? You know, wouldn't it be nice if life had that? You could just be going along and go through something at work for your faith, or going through something at school, or going through something at family, and just right above your head went, eh, and this is only a test. It's a test. This is only a test. Because sometimes we don't recognize the test in life until after we have failed them. That's what Warren Worsby said. Um, as he, he, I want to even think about that. It, it, thinking about that we go through all these tests in life, but we never know that they are tests until after we, we got a big fat F in them. So it's very imperative that we understand that we are, are going through tests in life, and we're going to get continue to go through tests. Peter understood that. The early church, as Peter was writing to, which we saw a few weeks ago, is dispersed across Asia Minor especially, and he's writing to encourage them because they are experiencing opposition for being Christians, especially within the Roman Empire. And there's a variety of reasons why. First, because they refuse to worship the emperor as God. That's going to put them as opposition. When everybody loves or at least uh, reveres the emperor, and they refuse to bow down. Secondly, another reason they were outsiders and exiles and strangers is that they refused to go to the pagan temples and worship, which meant that there was an economic reality if, if, so, if a group of people became Christians, because they're not giving to the temple, and the local businesses that would build the idols weren't being supported. So come down to economics. That's another aspect of it. So their, their refusal to participate in it and their refusal to value the, the values or the virtues of, that Rome, of the Republic of Rome put them at odds. And it made them as outsiders. And they would go through all kinds of opposition. And the more that we grow in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, you have placed your faith in him, you're going to find yourself at opposition from this world. Now, I'm amazed, and I've been looking at the statistics for the past several years, and we talk about Christian America. This is no longer Christian America. And what I mean by that is in practice, in that there are so many people in our world today that are not Christians. And we're finding ourselves more and more on the outskirts. We find ourselves different from the world's values. We don't esteem what the world esteems. We're going to see that in our workplaces more and more. We're going to see it in our schools, as we already do see within our schools. We're going to be in continued opposition. And Peter knew that. And he, he wanted to encourage us to know how we are to live in the midst of this world as we're going through test after test of faith. Because sometimes when that opposition comes, we get down. We feel that we've done something wrong. We get irritated. But Peter wants us to change our understanding of it. And if we're to ever pass this test, then it's going to require us to do and see several things that Peter has laid out for us within the Word today. But before we get further into that, let's pause for a moment, asking God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come to you now hungry, hungry to understand, 
hunger to know, hungry to know you. Lord, we know that our fullness of joy is found only within you. And Lord, we know that this world is filled with afflictions of all kinds, of different trials and tribulations that we're going to go through. But Lord, we ask that you teach us on how we are to go through them. Change us. Help us to understand what our attitude should be. How we should react and respond to those who are against us and declared war against the people of faith. So Lord, please glorify your name in our midst today. Remove any inclination or unbelief that is keeping us from hearing who you are. And by your spirit and your word, speak to the truth, speak the truth of your word to our lives. Cut us that we may not, uh, not to harm us, but to heal us, that we might walk closer with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we need to understand is that if we are aliens within this world, and if we're going to ever pass this test, Peter wants us to know that we need to recalibrate our understanding of affliction. That's the first thing that we need to do, is recalibrate our attitude toward affliction. Many of us think that if we're suffering, something's wrong. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we suffer in life because we have been disobedient and God brings suffering our way. But there are other times that we suffer for an entirely different reason. And even then, when we do suffer, our natural tendency is to give way, get despondent, to get down, to get depressed. But that's not what Peter tells us to do. He wants us to, to be joyous as we go through it, echoing the words even of James chapter 1 verse 2 through 4. I want you to look at that for a second. This is one of these verses that you've probably repeated and you hate it. Because <laughs> we, we repeat it and say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James wants us to take joy in our trials, as does Peter. We need to recalibrate our understanding of affliction. Now, Peter goes on to say that our trials are short-lived. Not so much in duration, but much within comparison. Meaning that this life is really short. It's very short. We're given 70, 80, 90, 100 years, 100, I mean 120. I mean, there's still people that are hitting that mark now. Better than that, it's gone. And eternity is a lot longer. So we're going to go through trials for a little while, meaning that while we're in this life, but when we enter into eternity, there's not going to be any more trials. There's not going to be any more suffering. Not any longer. We need to recalibrate our understanding of trials. Now the Greek word there does mean short time, quickly, a little while. And the sentence structure is arranged in such a way that it indicates that the suffering Peter has in mind may be an, an, an inevitable situation, not a merely possible occurrence. How is it inevitable? It's inevitable because of our new birth, our heavenly citizenship. See, when we come to know Jesus, we're going to be alienated and transformed from the values of unbelieving society, which places, it, places us at odds. And I'm seeing this more and more, and I think you are too. And not just in the United States of America, but in other countries as well. We see that in the realm of marriage and in life, and even in economics and things like that. We're seeing how this world just wants to take, take, and take, give, give, and give, 
and not understand to take personal responsibility for one's actions. They want to redefine things that God has declared to be good in its original state. I mean, I don't know if you saw this in September of 2011 that um, some officials or legislators in Mexico City were meeting together to discuss the changing of marriage, not being permanent, but to be a marriage contract. So until death do us part, it would be until the year 2013. So they're trying to change that because they recognize just divorce is rampant. And then we see the, the proliferation of gay marriage, which we've talked about many different times in the past. And even France is now the 12th country to legislate it and indicate that it's okay. And we see abortion having its effect. And we see sexual slavery. And we see um, several economic injustice and oppression. And we see widows and orphans. We see this all over our world today. But yet we see what the Bible declares to be evil. Our society is now declaring in some ways to be good and acceptable and the new normal. And it's on our TV shows. It's on our movie theaters. It's in our books. It's in our classrooms. It's everywhere we go. And the more that we are followers of Christ, we're going to find ourselves at odds from this world. As we stand for Christ, we're going to inevitably find ourselves alienated from this world. Now, this doesn't mean that we're trying to redeclare or rediscover a Christian majority. That's not what I'm advocating. Nor does it mean that we're making the battlefield, uh, our battlefield the political arena. That's not it. Yes, we do vote. I know many people after the election, some were jubilant. Others were completely depressed when they woke up on Wednesday morning. But as I, I told you before, last Sunday, and I, and I mean it, the Messiah is not in the White House. Don't think that you're going to legislate people into the kingdom of God. Now, we are to vote our values, yes, but understand that each individual who steps into the oath of office is a fallen individual. And sometimes we blame the individual, but we forget about the people that put him there. I read an article this past week. It was uh, from a writer in Hungary who was looking at us, and he, he made his observation. He just said, if a fool gets elected into office, it's not the fool's fault. It's the fools that put him there. Whoever that may be. Whoever that may be. So we have to understand that our battle is not in the political arena. But we do, again, stand for what is true, but we understand that's not where our hope lies. My hope does not lie in that, pers in that person in that office or in any form of government or congressman or leader. Mine is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Because he's the one who gave us life. But I'll tell you, the more that we testify and live for him, we're going to find ourselves at odds with this world. But we continue to testify to what is true. And while we do so, we will go through trials. We will be considered aliens. Aliens from this world, strangers from their values, virtues, and pursuits. And while we are here, we're going to be grieved See, the Greek word for grieve there in 1 Peter is, it, it means to cause pain, to cause sorrow, to be put to grief. Now see, the word is not expressing suffering per se, but the mental effect of suffering and what it does to us. Now the idea there for also various conveys the, conveys the idea of diversified, manifold, different kinds. It means then that we will be experiencing the mental anguish of affliction through various sufferings. 
And it means that could, this word for trials could mean the undeserved suffering from without. Now, what does all this mean? It means this, that for us, as we're going through trials, as we're going through these tests, we have to understand that these trials are a test for us. These trials are a test. Look at verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, or the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, might may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word for tested there means tried, approved, after trial, genuineness, without alloy, genuineness is a result of a test. The idea is that the genuine element in our faith is proven through trials. Trials are a test to strengthen our faith. It shows whether our faith is genuine. Now, fascinatingly enough, our faith is seen to go through a testing similar to that as of gold. But our faith is more precious than gold. Now, the word for precious means costly, precious in comparison of greater price, being very high on a monetary scale, very precious, valuable. There's a similar word used to describe the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13, verse 46, that a man finds and he's willing to sell everything that he has in order to get it. It's also used of Matthew, um, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 7, when the, the, uh, the pure um, oil is broken, spikenard is broken of Jesus and anoints him, that we find out is 300 days wages of a laborer. It's saying that our faith, though it's tested, it's going to be greater of more value than any monetary thing that this world has to offer when it comes through. It's that precious. It's that rare. It's that valuable. More valuable than any gold or diamond or jewelry that you could ever receive. It's amazing. And what we have. So we see that it is to be, our faith is to be tested. Now it's interesting enough that gold, in order to remove the purities from it, is put through the fire. And the, the impurities would raise to the top as it would go through the, the smelting furnace. And then it would be skimmed off. Now see, too, our faith is going through the fire. See, trials are a test, but our faith is to go through fire. That's what I want you to write down. Trials are a test, but faith is to go through fire. It must go through fire. Our faith is to go through adversity. There's an old story that indicates that. I'm sure that many of you have heard it over the years. It's the story of the butterfly and the cocoon. And the story is of a little boy who was walking through the forest when he came upon a butterfly struggling to get out of its cocoon. See, the boy waited and watched with fascination, hoping to witness the brand new butterfly emerge and fly away. But the process was long and slow. So it occurred to the little boy that something was wrong. So he sees that the butterfly was stuck. So he reached out and began to tear the cocoon to create a bigger hole out of which the butterfly could escape. It worked. The boy could see one of the big, beautiful wings unfolding from the cocoon. Then the other wing and the whole body of the butterfly emerged. Then, then though, to the boy's horror, the butterfly fell to the ground and, ri and wriggled on the forest floor its wings weak and limp. See, the boy picked up the butterfly and tossed it in the air, but the butterfly fluttered to the ground. When the boy had gone back home, a bird landed on a branch where the cocoon had been. The bird spotted the butterfly, 
dove to the forest floor and ate the butterfly for lunch. In his attempt to help, the boy actually destroyed that butterfly. You see, butterflies have to go through the process of struggling out of their cocoons to develop their wing muscles so that when they emerge, they are strong and can immediately fly away. Butterflies need adversity, trauma, and hardship before giving a good life of butterflyhood. Visit any butterfly sanctuary and you will see the beautiful end to result of all these struggles. Now, the analogy of the butterfly can be applied to many, character, many characters in the Bible. From Abraham to Joseph to Job, many of God's faithful servants have lived their lives struggling out of the cocoon only to become stronger in their mission as Christians. Had God given them everything they needed for an easy life, they would have not been ready to fulfill his plans for them. I mean, think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a great example. They're cast into the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow and worship down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. So their faith is literally thrown into the fire. But the cool thing is, is that when our faith goes through fire, God goes with us. Because who else is in the fire with them? Son of God. Walking around. So when we go through fire, know that Jesus goes with us. Why does God allow us to go through such adversity? Peter tells us so that our faith may proven to be pure. Proven to be pure. That's what our affliction, suffering, and adversity is for, to purify and prove our faith. It's like the, the tea bag story. That's another old one. You've heard of the tea bag story. The tea bag is just helpless by itself, but it's not until it is put into hot water that the flavor comes out. The same is true with us as Christians. When we, we go through adversity, we find out where and what our flavor is. It only comes out through affliction. It's through the pain that God speaks to us. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How true is that? Many of us don't pay attention to God until we have pain in our lives. Isn't that true? When everything's going great and grand, we don't need God. When we have the, the, the pantry is filled with food, the refrigerator is stuffed, all the bills are paid, we have savings in the bank, everything seems to be going really well. We don't need God. That's far from true. We must make sure that we're not delighting in the gifts, but in their giver. The giver who gave it, because God has given us those gifts for a reason. It's not just to sit around. God has blessed us for reasons to, that we might reach the rest of the world. It's phenomenal to think how much blessing we have bestowed upon us in the United States of America. We have been blessed beyond belief. And God expects us to use that blessing to make His name known. God speaks to us through our pains in order to purify our faith so that we might become closer to Him. As the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, So we do not lose heart as we go through these afflictions. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I like that, our light momentary affliction. And when you look about what Paul's gone through, it doesn't seem like a light momentary affliction. He's been beaten with rods. He's been cursed by his countrymen. He's in danger in the city. He's in danger in the country. He's in danger at every hour. He is sometimes naked. He's sometimes thirsty. He's being persecuted. People want to kill him. His old countrymen, they don't want him. And he's, he's having to deal with all of this sin that's going on within the churches. And Paul calls it a light, momentary affliction. Wow. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We will receive our reward, reward and glory. See, the problem that many of us have is we want our reward now. We want our reward in the here and now. We don't want to live for eternity. We want comfort now. Many of us are like, well, if I can have eternity and now, that'll be great. I get the best of both worlds. But no, we need to be living our life in light of eternity. We will receive our reward and glory. That's what I'm looking forward to, not in the here and now. See, the day when all of the hardships, all of the pains, all of the problems, all of the laughter and scorn that comes from standing for Christ against the things of this world will be vindicated. That is the same thing that Peter wants us to understand and look forward to. See, look at the second part of verse 7 may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be rewarded. He wants us to understand that if we're going to understand or pass the tests of faith, then we need to understand what awaits on the other side, which involves us looking forward to our future vindication. Look forward to our future vindication. Understand what awaits. Don't think reward is a bad motivator. That's what the entire Sermon of the Mount talks about. Great is your reward. Great is your reward. Great is your reward. So God has, uses reward as a means of motivation. We must make sure that we are looking forward to our future vindication. Now, the, the revelation of Jesus is the Greek word apocalypsi, from which we get the word apocalypse. It means making fully known, disclosure. The world is a, word is especially used in the uh, Revelation or the Parousia, or the second coming of Jesus when he comes to judge the world. Paul uses a similar, similar word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 12. I want to get the whole context for you. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay, repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he's using the same verbiage, the words, wording right here. With his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him 
according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can see from Peter and from Paul in that instance that our vindication will involve praise and glory and honor. Interestingly enough, that the word for praise refers to the act of expressing admiration or approval. Praise, approval, recognition from God. In other words, our vindication will involve a personal recognition. See, at the second coming of Christ, you will be personally recognized for your faithfulness and staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we see, too. The same word is used in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, but the Spirit not uh, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise, that's the word there, epinos, is not from man, but from God. We can also see it again used in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. When Christ comes again, he will give you a personal recognition. He will call you out. It'll be a personal recognition at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the second word here is glory, which is the word doxon. It refers to glory, but glory as honor, as enhancement, or recognition of status or performance, fame, recognition, renown, honor, and prestige. Notice that... that uh, that others, it is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, so where is that revelation going to be? So we have to understand this revelation when it comes. Is it just going to be a private matter? I mean, we're going to have a personal recognition, but is it private? No. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 gives us a very good idea. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Or in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So who is there? Everybody. It will not just be a personal recognition, but a public commendation. It'll be a personal recognition and a public commendation. He will give glory to you. And it will be for those who have stayed true to him. Every eye will see him when he comes again. And when he judges, it will be publicly. And then we will receive the reward for what we have done in his name. It will be a public commendation. Notice that we will also receive honor. Now the Greek word there means honor, manifestation of esteem, reverence, or better yet, the respect one enjoys honor as a possession. I like that. Honor as a possession. What does that mean? It means a reputation. It means that, that we will receive a precious reputation. It is the giving of honor, a possession, giving um, by God that has been bestowed upon us. So he's going to give us a personal recognition, a public commendation, and then a precious reputation. I mean, that's one of the greatest things that we can possess, a good reputation. And, and, and if it's bestowed by Jesus himself, how precious of a reputation that will be. That all of creation will see and know who he is and what he has done. 
and what we, what we have, how we have stayed true to Him. And God will receive glory through us because of it. See, if we stand for God, we will receive commendation from Him as well as be given a precious reputation. But we don't just look to the future. There's a present aspect to this. See, the word for receiving in verse 9 is a present participle that depends for its temporal understanding on the tense of the principal verb. All that means is, is that this must be dis- uh, understood as a present activity, and it's pro- probably best understood in a causal sense. You're to love and rejoice because you are obtaining the goal of your faith. See, that has a future orientation. That can't be denied. And it is this term about the end that is coming. See, the sense that Christians now obtain by faith, what they will only enter into at that end, the power of the new age, the age that is coming, is already at work within us and allows Christians in our present plight to experience something of the joy that is awaiting us. In other words, it's this. The kingdom of God was inaugurated in Jesus Christ. It was started in Him. We can enter into what has already begun by faith in His name. So it's not just referring to something that's future, that awaits us at the end of time. It's something that we can have now. We can be a participant of the kingdom of God and experience just a foretaste of that joy now. It's a taste of what is to come. Have you ever had that before? Have you ever had just this amazing meal prepared before you and you can't eat it yet? But you get just one little bite and you want it more? How good it it really is? I, I, I like that. I, I like to go to Costco. Anybody go to Costco? Sam? I like to, when, I, when we were first married, we used to go there for dinner. We would go to the sample sections. And uh, we would just kind of walk around and try the different samples. And sometimes, though, you find a very good sample. And you just want to try a little bit of that sample. You try that sample, and then you want the whole thing. So amazing. See, that's what the kingdom of God is like. He gives us a sample by His Spirit, this glorious joy that has already been started in Christ that we just get a little piece of now. And that's wonderful. Just a glimpse. Just a a crack through the door. We get to see what awaits us. That makes us want it even more now. That means, what, what does Peter want us to understand there? That we need to be embracing our present participation in Christ's kingdom that has already been started. We're to be embracing that. Embracing God's purpose for us. That's what he wants us to do in the here and now. To place all of our life under his authority. To see him, the the Lord of every single part of our lives. And experience the joy that comes through that. We can see that in verse 8. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't see Jesus today. We don't see him. We haven't seen him. I haven't seen him. No one in this room has seen him personally, literally, physically. We take it by faith. And as Jesus said in John 20 through 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we take it by faith. See, therefore, our participation in this kingdom is taken by faith. It is seen through our faith. It's seen through our faith. And what is faith? 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we know that without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. We participate in His kingdom by the Spirit birthing faith in His sacrificial death through us, or in us, which enabled us to live in grace and continue in the Spirit's power. It is a foretaste of God's kingdom being worked out in and through us. See, our our participation is not only seen through our faith, but it's seen through our hope. Our hope. It is our hope. We haven't seen Him. We have faith in Him, and we hope for what is to come. As the Bible says in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, our sufferings inspire more hope within us. We want it more. We desire it more. The more that we suffer, the more that we see how precious our faith is and we want to see it being exhibited and displayed and and vindicated. We have this amazing hope that God has given unto us. Our sufferings inspire us to hope more in Him. It makes us look long, uh, look, look for Him longingly and long for Him to act, to enter into history again, showing Himself to be the sovereign Lord of all. He is our blessed hope, the one upon whom all of our hope is set. It's not in the White House. It's in Jesus Christ. See, lastly, we participate in His kingdom by or through love. Through love. Look at verse 8 again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Love. John draws this out, this truth out, and I've put this verse up there extended a bit for you to talk about the power of this love that he has. First, it begins in his love for us, and then it's through our love in response to him and our love for one another as the Spirit of God is working within each one of us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's how we see that God loves us, that He gave His Son to die on our behalf, that we could have life in Him. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. That's what Peter's saying. Though you've not seen him, you love him. We've not seen him. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. None of this can be done without his spirit working within each one of us to bring that love to fruition. 
So we see him bringing that love out in us and through us. And we have, verse 14, seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him by his Spirit. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Remember, our relationship with God is seen in the vertical and in the horizontal. How we love one another, those who are made in the image of God. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He goes on, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever who has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. See, we enter into this, uh, the kingdom of God through the Spirit of God birthing new life in us. And then we continually participate by enjoying and abiding in that love as we have His Spirit and we take in the things of the Spirit to let that love also not only dwell in us, but pass through us and to other people, in the vertical and in the horizontal. So we are participants within that kingdom, and it flows out from every aspect of who we are. Fascinatingly enough that we just see there faith, hope, and love. Do you know that those three strands go through the epistles in the New Testament over and over again? Faith hope, and love, faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love, but as Paul said, the greatest of these is love, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the greatest of these is love, as the old song says, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love, see what a day of rejoicing that will be, when we will see the revelation of our Lord, it will be a somber time for us, but a thrilling time. It will, be a somber, not, will not be a somber time, but it will be a thrilling time of um, overwhelming and unbelievable joy. See, Peter understood that and knew that if we are to pass this test, that it requires us rejoicing in our salvation's ultimate consummation. Rejoicing in our salvation's ultimate con consummation. See, we've talked about that. that. Salvation has three parts. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. See, you have justification where we are declared righteous in the sight of God. The, the sanctification, the process by we, which we are, uh, actually has two parts, positionally holy by our faith in Him, and also progressively holy as we pro progress on in life. And then it'll be completed the moment we enter into His presence. That'll be the moment of glorification or our consummation. When our faith will be consummated, it'll be the, the, the most wonderful thing that we could possibly 
<laughs> that I will ever have known or will know. He wanted, Peter wanted us to look ahead and think about what awaited us, just like Jesus did. As the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus went through unimaginable pain in order to give us unimaginable pleasure. He endured it all because he, know, he, he knew what was on the other side. We must not seek our best life now, and could, and, but the future, and continually be reminded that the consummation is going to be future. It's going to be future. It's what lay, lies ahead for us. That's that next point there, rejoicing in our salvation's consummation and understanding that it will be future. It's going to come. It is the outcome of our faith. We have a taste of it by the Spirit, but it's not all what God has in store. There's so much more to come. Many of you might be familiar with that story, the, the keep your for fork story. It's an old chicken soup for the soul story, but it's a good one. It tells of a woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. So as she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scriptures she would like to have read, and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. The woman also request, requested to be buried with her favorite Bible. Everything was in order, and the pastor was preparing to leave when the woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. She said, there's one more thing. Um, what's that, came the pastor's reply. She said, this is very important. She continued, I, don't want, to be, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Very odd request. The pastor stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say. Uh, she said, that surprises you, doesn't it? Well, to be honest, he replied, I'm puzzled by the request. The woman explained, in all my years of attending church, socials and potluck dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming. Like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful. It went with substance. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand. And I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? <laughs> then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. The pastor's eyes welled with tears as he hugged the woman goodbye. He knew this would be one of the last times he would see her before her death. But he also knew that the woman had a better grasp of heaven than he did. She knew that something better was coming. At the funeral, people were walking by the woman's casket, and they saw the pretty dress she was wearing and her favorite Bible in the fork placed in her right hand. Over and over, the pastor heard the question, What's with the fork? And over and over, he smiled. During his message, the pastor told the people of the conversation he had with the woman shortly before she died. He also told them about the fork and what it symbolized for her. The pastor told the people how he could not stop thinking about the fork and told them that they probably would not be able to stop thinking about it either. He was right. So the next time you reach down for your fork, let it remind you oh so gently that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. See, when Christ comes 
That will be the best, and that will be, the per- that will be perfection, the finishing of perfection. What we have is a foretaste of the future, but what is to come, that is final. That's it. It's not just future, but it's final. That's it. There's, there's no second chance. There will be no second chances, no do-overs, no going back, no technicalities, no trying again, no mulligans, nothing like that. There will be also no excuses. We will experience the verdict of God, and everything within us will agree with that judgment, for His is the only one who will know our hearts and minds. He is the only one who knows us better than we know ourselves, for He made us. Our judgment in His presence will be final. The consummation will be the exclamation point to this life. But as we said a moment ago, the best is yet to come. See, in the consummation, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. It will be final, but it will also be fabulous. Fabulous. If you guys have been around me for a while and you know that I love C.S. Lewis, I probably would have named my son that if, if his name wasn't Clive. It's a dumb name. But... I'm amazed at his writing. I have been for years. And one of the most touching and poignant parts is in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, entitled The Last Battle. And it, he is speaking to the, the children. Uh, and he, he says this. He brings it up. He says, No fear of that, said Aslan, which is the Christ figure. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. He says, There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say, that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a great picture. Isn't that amazing to think about what eternity will be like? I mean, the sufferings of this world, we're going to find ourselves continuing to suffer more and more. It's a byproduct of our standing true for the truth of who God is. But we must remember that what awaits us, I mean, this is a light momentary affliction. And what awaits us is of far greater value. Something greater than we could ever know. But it only comes to those who have placed their faith in him, who have repented of their sins and received Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life and trusted him alone for the forgiveness of sins. And then he gives his spirit to you, awakens and tries to will grow the Son of God within you, further conforming you and directing your life that you might look more and more like his Son. God will give you the strength for the day in and the day out. He will speak to you through his word and through other believers coming alongside you and as you continue to pray to him. If you're here today and you've not received Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, it's just, you can do it today. You simply call on the name of the Lord, as the scripture says, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
and trust in him. Repent of your sins and invite him as Savior in your life, and he will save and transform you. This world is passing away. The real world is coming. Christ is coming. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know he's guaranteed to come. And Peter wanted to remind us of that fact, that he is coming again. And we look for that day, knowing that all of the sufferings that we've gone through will be worth it when we're rewarded with him at his revelation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, forgive us for our sins, for they are many. We know all too often how we fail, how we fall, how we falter. Lord, we need your forgiveness. Lord, there are those in this room that have not yet trusted in you as Savior of their lives. I pray that you might awaken them by your Spirit, show them their need of having forgiveness of their sins and eternal life through the Son of God who bought them by his blood. And Lord, I pray for each one of us who have already received that. I pray that we might continue on in the face of hostility and suffering, knowing that these sufferings are preparing our, a light momentary affliction, helping prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. Lord, may we continue on. May we have that joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we think about what is to come, as we are reminded day in and day out that this world is not our home. Lord, when suffering comes, may we consider it pure joy. Though we are grieved, though we are suffering, trying to figure out what to do, what to say, how to, prog- how to continue on, Lord, we ask you to give us courage. We also, to ask, uh, we also ask you, Lord, to keep us rock solid in conviction. So Lord, please make your name known in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our nation, and in this world. Lord, help us to be lights as the world continually looks darker and darker around us. May our light shine. And may you receive glory because of it. Lord, help us to be a lighthouse in the midst of a dark land. May your name always resound here in the hearts of men and women who are submitting themselves to you in repentance and faith, turning from their sins and embracing you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, for those here that are still holding on to their sin, I pray that you convict them and draw them near to yourself. Let them see the greatness and the depth of your love for them. And may they, too, come to the saving knowledge of who you are. Lord, please glorify your name in our midst and make your name known so that you might receive glory and that we might receive joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.